confident wise men in verse 12. Well then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. So the wise men of Egypt cannot reveal God's plans, nor can they prevent them from taking place. They are helpless before the might of the Creator God. Interestingly, the Egyptians did once have a man, a man of God, who can tell them what the future had in store for them, and his name was, of course, Joseph. Egypt did not embrace the God of Israel then, and they won't embrace him in the midst of the judgment he had in store for them at the time. But, we'll find out next week, some of them will turn to him when the final tribulation judgment falls upon Egypt, just as it falls on the rest of the world. The latter half of the chapter addresses the issue of some individual Egyptians' faith in Yahweh. Now the question here, where are your wise men, is a question of doubt and ridicule. The Egyptian men existed, that's not the issue, but their wisdom was certainly nowhere to be found, which made it seem as though they were missing in action, so to speak. Worthless wise men are worse than no wise men. I mean, if you're, if you're a, a leader and you have control and command over the very lives of your subjects, if you're getting bad advice, that's not a good thing anywhere, anytime throughout history. If there are no wise men, then people are not seeking wisdom from them. But wise men with no answers, or even worse, with false advice and directives, are dangerous to the king and the nation that relies on them. And we're going to see that God rendered these men worthless in terms of their so-called wise counsel to Pharaoh. Now, this will not be the last time the issue of incompetent, even fraudulent, pagan wise is revealed in the Bible. King Nebuchadnezzar dealt with such wise men in the book of Daniel, you'll recall. He didn't trust them, but he was smart. He didn't trust them. He said, you guys are lying to me. I want you to tell me the dream before you tell me what it means. I'm not telling you the dream, because then you can tell me anything you want. I want you to tell me the dream. Then I'll know you're really wise men. And you see how wisdom there is connected with God, who's the revealer of dreams. God is. So you see how all these things work together. The situation has implications for history. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 1.9, there's nothing new under the sun. In the nature of the case, inasmuch as they were steeped in polytheism and idolatry, the Egyptian wise men were not true wise men at all, for they had no knowledge of true wisdom. Isaiah's words are applicable to all times. The counselors and statesmen who try to solve the problems of the world apart from the wisdom of God show themselves but fools following a path that leads to destruction. And I think that has some serious term truth evident to us today if we're paying attention. In terms of application, all the people who think they're wise and who think they can solve the world's problems using secular humanist reasoning and methods are simply leading the world right down the path to judgment that will ultimately be the culmination of history as we know it. Then he who possesses true wisdom will assume his throne and rule his kingdom in wisdom, truth, and righteousness. Then we're going to see 
what truly wise leadership looks like when Jesus Christ is ruling. Now, some theologians question whether or not the Egyptians should have known anything about the Jewish God, but that's a specious argument. They had the revelation of God that Joseph revealed to them, and they had the revelation Moses gave them and that God personally provided them through signs, wonders, and miracles during the Exodus that should have been recorded and passed from generation to generation. Rather than turn to God, however, they most likely tried to destroy any memory of that part of their history. Pagans don't like to record any embarrassing history. They also had Israel right next to them. Certainly they knew of Yahweh and the worship of him in Israel. And he was not unknown to them as an entity. Only their pagan hardened hearts kept them from investigating him and coming to faith. That situation is no different today. God is known to the unbelieving pagan world through his creation, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The, the knowledge is there. They have it. Every human being has it. They just deliberately suppress it so they don't have to deal with it unless, of course, they want to deal with it, at which time, as they begin dealing with it, God gives them more light. As they get more light, they investigate further, and eventually they come to the point where they can either believe or ultimately reject it and remain in darkness. Now the wise men now are condemned again in verse 13 for their foolishness. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. Now the city that was also used as a capital city, Memphis, is introduced here. Memphis was the first capital of the unified nation, and it remained an important city until Islam conquered it. It was particularly noted for its religious activity, with temples built there to honor and worship various pagan entities, particularly Ptah, a creator god, his wife Sekhmet, and their son Nefertem. Apis, the bull god, was also worshipped there. So the princes, the counselors, and advisors attending the royal court are called out by God for their foolishness. Here's the map again, of course, with Memphis down here at the south end of the, uh, the delta. The capital area had been up here, and then it moved down here, although this remained a very important city here. The word foolishness here is ya'al. It means to be foolish or to act foolishly. It refers to behaving in a way that shows a lack of wisdom or understanding good judgment. It depicts an action, behavior, and attitude that are against what is considered wise, prudent, and upright. In spiritual terms, it involves it involves both an ignorance of God's ways and an active insensibility in opposition to the known righteous behavior which God desires of his people for their own good. So again, it's linked to knowledge of God. Deluded. Nasha means to be deceived, to be misguided. It refers to being led in the wrong direction by someone. It also has the sense of giving oneself false hopes. The pride of humankind's heart is thus able to cause persons to deceive themselves refusing to recognize their limitations. I think Paul said it better in Romans 1, where they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
but nevertheless, it's the same idea expressed here in this lexicon. Now, these men occupy very important influential positions in Egyptian society. They can at least influence the king to set public policy, if not set it themselves. The word cornerstone in these verses is pinah. It means a corner or a cornerstone. It refers to the head of a tribe or clan. It's used here in the figurative sense of princes who are leaders, not only among the respective political or tribal subdivisions, but in the Egyptian governmental system as part of Pharaoh's court. And their worthless advice has led the people of Egypt astray. Their leadership has failed them, and they have wandered away from the path they should have trod. We see that in this word astray. Ta'a means to err, to wander about, to stagger, to go astray. It refers to wandering from a proper belief or course of action. It most frequently used of someone, most of someone erring or being misled in a moral or religious sense. So again, I keep bringing you back. These verses are just full of these ideas that people are foolish and stupid and unwise when they reject the things of God and they start turning to idols and paganism and the occult rather than turning to him. So the picture here then, what we're seeing, is one of high-ranking men, the leadership council of Egypt, who think they are wise, but they are stupid fools in the spiritual sense with the result that they have deceived themselves into guiding their nation and their people into disaster. These princes have caused themselves to be foolish and deluded with the result that they have led the people astray and right into a disaster. And this is in part in addition to the pagan inclinations that naturally cloud the unsaved mind of mankind. The work of the Lord who gave the Egyptian leadership a spirit of distortion. This is a spirit of judgment. In other words, God is putting this spirit of, he's deluding them. In the same way there's going to be a delusion in the, at the end times, According to Second Thessalonians, God's going to put a deluding influence in the world. He's done that before. He's doing it here in Egypt. Isaiah 19:14, the foolish, deluded, and distorted state renders their advice faulty and incorrect, resulting in a nation of people who are led astray. It renders them so senseless that they're staying around in their own filth as though they are extremely intoxicated. As a result of God's judgment, Everything in Egypt comes to a halt. Normal life cannot continue as before. The last verse, 15. There will be no work for Egypt which its head or tail, its palm branch or, or bulrush may do. So this is a bad time. But it's not going to be a bad time. And as I said when I started this this morning, some people think that these first 15 verses are all about the end times as well. I'm saying I think there's implications for both, short-term and long-term implications here. But what we're going to see next week now is that it certainly is long-term in that eventually some Egyptians are going to come to the Lord and be part of a, a favored area between Assyria, Israel, and Egypt all coming together in that part of the world, which is something that, of course, has never been done. Okay. That's all I have for today, so let's pray and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for these amazing truths that you have in the Word of God, and we thank you for this book of Isaiah that is so amazing in, in, in what you revealed to us to have us know and understand concerning your plan for history. 
for Israel, for the church, for the end of the world. These are amazing truths in this book, and I thank you for revealing them to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we go through this book, we understand them to the best of our human ability to do so, that we teach them well and rightly divided, and to the extent that uh, we err, that you make that uh, known to me so that I can correct the record and teach only what it is that you would have to be taught. Father, I thank you for everyone that's here today, and once again, I pray for your blessing on their lives in the coming week. And I pray for our, our new pastor and his family as he makes a transition from uh, his job in the world to a job serving you and glorifying your name in this church. And we pray for his wife and his children as they walk alongside him in this new ministry endeavor that they will be of great help to him and love and comfort to him as he does these things. I pray for our elders and our deacons that we serve well and lead well. Pray for your leadership and guidance in all that we do. I thank you for your presence with us, and I pray, Lord, that Jesus would come back soon so that we can be not only here in your presence in this house, but in your presence where you are and where you would have us to be forever in the presence of Jesus Christ as the bride of Christ. I pray for the world, Father, that people would come to know you before it's too late because there is a time of judgment coming. And I pray that you help us to be lights, each one of us, in our own individual little world that we inhabit in, in our own space so that we can help other people come to know Jesus Christ just as we have. So we thank you today for all of these things in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. If you wish to help provide supper, call Carla Rogers. All right, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a moment to do that. I'll open us up with a prayer, and we'll jump right back into Isaiah again this morning. Father, we are so very grateful for what Jesus did for us on that cross, and we thank you that you drew us to you and opened our eyes to the truth as some faithful Christian preached the gospel to us so that we might believe. And in the same way, I pray that as you are drawing other people to you, that we would be faithful to preach the gospel to lost people who may then come to faith themselves. Now, we know full well that many people will reject it, but we also know that there are people out there who need to hear it who will believe it, and they need to be saved. And we thank you for that, and we thank you for your word as we study it this morning in this amazing book of Isaiah. Uh, we pray that uh, more and more Christian people would get into the word of God and, and learn what it actually says, rather than, uh, as so often in, in America today, it seems that, that we are making about ourselves instead of about Christ and the work that he did on our behalf, and that's not a trap that we want to fall into. We want to teach the word well so that people are equipped to tell other people the truth that it contains. Father, I pray for your blessing on everyone that's here today and will be here in the next hour. I pray that you bless them and keep them in the coming week. Help us to meet all of these challenges that we have in this life. There are many in this sinful world, and we look forward to that day when 
Jesus comes back and gets his church, and then a few years later he comes back again to set up his kingdom, and that's going to be an amazing time in world history, and we look forward to being privileged to see it as adopted members of the family of God, ruling and reigning with Christ Jesus as the bride of Christ. So we thank you today for all of these truths, and we thank you for your presence with us here in this house this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, Isaiah 19 this morning, the first 15 verses on judgment on Egypt. As you, I'm sure you know, Egypt has a long and storied history, biblical and extra-biblical. It may be the most examined and academically studied nation in the world, particularly in terms of its ancient past. You can always find programs on cable TV about ancient Egypt and archaeology and all that, and it is quite fascinating, but it's also interesting to see that and know it from a biblical standpoint as well. So that was fun for me to go through the book of Exodus like I did and be introduced to some of those things more than, than I was. Uh, a couple maps of Egypt here, of course. Uh, Northern Egypt is called Lower Egypt, and Southern Egypt is called Upper Egypt, with the Nile, of course, going through. And if it wasn't for the Nile River, there wouldn't be much of a nation there because there's not much in that place except for up and down this, this river valley. Now, this chapter we're going to examine today, beginning today, also has short-term and long-term implications for understanding it. Uh, theologians who deny a literal tribulation and a literal kingdom have to say that beginning in verse 16, which is introduced by the eschatological term in that day, must have been added to the chapter long after Isaiah wrote the first 15 verses that we're going to look at today. But these first 15 verses are about judgment on Egypt, and the last eight verses reveal the restoration of the nation, with two verses in between, 16 and 17, that we'll talk about next week, serving as a bridge between the two sections. The first part is a type of the second part as well. We can't ignore the long-term implications of the third part of this chapter, which reveals an end times national salvation for Egypt. Some theologians believe the entire chapter refers to end times events. So even this part that we're talking about today, some people believe belongs in the end times. Now, I may have said this a little wrong here. I said national salvation for Egypt. It's not really a national salvation for them. I think it's more a case of there will be Egyptians who come to faith rather than a national salvation like we think of it with Israel. So that's probably not the best way to say it. There will be Egyptians who are saved in the end. And Egypt as a nation apparently will have some sort of exalted status in the kingdom. One of the perpetual problems Israel had before the captivity of both kingdoms was their propensity to seek out and enter into alliances with other pagan nations, and we've been talking about that throughout some of these uh, last few chapters. And that was an act forbidden by God. They were to rely on him for their protection. At certain times, they wanted to rely on Egypt. And part of the purpose of this chapter was to discourage any alliances of that sort between Judah and Egypt. And after all, if God's going to destroy that nation, then why should the Israelites enter into an alliance with that very same pagan nation? Well, they shouldn't. They shouldn't anyway. So whatever the short-term prophetical elements that are present in this chapter, they're a type of the destruction that will fall upon Egypt again in the future. Many of these prophecies are reminiscent of the Exodus judgments on Egypt 
and the tribulation judgments are also reminders of the Exodus judgments. These things all work together. The Bible's not a disjointed bunch of uh, books written over 1,500 years or 2,000 years by various guys. It all works together. Now let's look at the first verse here, 19.1. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Now it's a terrifying thing when God visits judgments on a nation and its people. And the Bible's full of those examples. I think particularly the book of Revelation when he's visiting his judgment upon the entire world. The terror that is abounding at that time is evident in that book. And this may happen in various ways. God may supernaturally intervene in time and space to impose an act of judgment on a particular nation such as he did during the Exodus and which he would do again during the tribulation. The slaying of Sennacherib's army in Judah by the angel of the Lord is another example. And he may also, he may also rise, raise up uh, pagan leaders who unwittingly do his will. For example, we all know that God used Assyria to impose temporal discipline on Israel, and he used Babylon to impose temporal discipline on Judah. And both of those nations were in turn destroyed by other pagan nations that God used to judge them. Babylon enforced God's judgment on Assyria, and Medo-Persia in turn chastised Babylon on behalf of the Lord. Uh, he may bring about what we refer to as natural disasters as judgment on a nation, but however it happens, it's extremely frightening for those who are experiencing it. Idols themselves are impotent and can do nothing, but the demons behind them do have power which they can and do exercise, but only to the extent they're allowed to do so by God. There's a limit on what they can do, how they can do it. When God acts, even the demons may become frightened. James revealed the demons believe in a monotheistic God, and the thought of that frightens them, uh, probably because they know the power that he possesses to judge them, and they know that judgment is coming for certain. As an example of that, in Matthew 8:29, the demons were afraid that the Lord was going to order their torment before the appointed time. They know what's coming, and they know there's a time for it to come. When God's judgment falls and the people realize their idols can do nothing to help them, fear develops deep within them, and they feel helpless as they realize their spirituality is unable to comfort them. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.31 said that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there are consequences for when we reject him, and these people will come to know them just as the demonic realm that followed Satan will as well. Now, just as God judged Egypt's, Egypt's idols at the time of the Exodus, they will be judged again in the future, both in temporal terms and in eschatological terms far into the future. We see in the past, Exodus 12.12, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And that's during the Exodus, of course. And in Jeremiah 46, 25, the prophet said, the, the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel says, Behold, I'm going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. 
And this was going to be at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And Ezekiel 30.13 says, Thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis, again at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Now, theologians argue over what king conquered Egypt and caused the conditions that we're going to be talking about here in this chapter. Constables summarize these positions, and they're kind of all over the place. Uh, the fulfillment may have been the Ethiopian fairy, pharaoh Pianchi, pharaoh Semeticus, one of the Assyrian kings, either Sargon II, Sennacherib, or Esarhaddon, or Ashurbanipal, or the Persian Artaxerxes III or Achus. So this last one doesn't fit the time period. I don't think I put those on there, no. So there's a lot of, in a lot of these things that I'm doing in these Judgment of the Nations, there's not a lot of agreement about exactly what is in view at what time. I'm, I was just working this week on the lesson that's coming up in 22, and we have the same problem there about, okay, what particular nation and what particular attack is this? My thinking is coming to be, and some of them, that it's not just one. It's a series of them that all point to bigger things on down the road, particularly to the end times. But what we're going to see here this, in this next verse suggests that what's going on here in, in this chapter we're looking at today is that there's a civil war within Egypt that's being revealed. But in the end... I have to concede it really doesn't matter. It happened at the Exodus. It happened in the past, and it's going to happen again. In that day, which in this chapter is a reference to the end times, as it so often is in Isaiah, but the text, however, supports the concept of civil discord within the nation itself. So context would suggest that maybe in that day here is not specific to this chapter, and yet you can't ignore the hints of the, the shades in that phrase of the end that's to come yet. So God is going to sow such a discord within Egypt that the nation is going to turn on itself. Isaiah 19, 2-4. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will each fight against his brother, and each against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. So historically, this may have been fulfilled in the aftermath of the overthrow of the Cushite dynasty in Egypt. Remember that, I think I mentioned in the past, that the Cushites, what many people call the, the Ethiopians, but it's bigger than that, conquered Egypt for a time. And there was actually a Cushite pharaoh in charge of the nation for some time. Some, it was less than 200 years, I don't remember how long. But, in, but eventually that Cushite king was overthrown. So there was a civil, there resulting then, maybe here, in a civil war among the 12 regions the nation split into after the Cushites were removed. An evil king would arise out of that to rule the nation for a time. And uh, Kyle and Delish cited the historical details of this time period. They said this, the prophecy does not relate to a foreign conqueror, but to a native despot. 
Verse 2 relates to the national revolution which broke out in Sais and resulted in the overthrow of the Ethiopian rule and to the federal Dodecarchy, and apparently that's a reference to the division of the nation into the 12 kingdoms. I didn't know what that word was, and I had to look it up, but it's a division or something, to which the rising of the nation led. Kingdom against kingdom, this exactly suits those 12 small kingdoms into which Egypt was split up after the overthrow of the Egyptian dynasty in the year 695 until Semeticus, the Dodecarch of Sais, succeeded in the year 670 in comprehending these 12 states once more under a single monarchy. This very Semeticus and the royal house of Semeticus generally is the hard ruler, the reckless despot. Now that may or may not be true. It, it's plausible and it makes sense, but we don't always know enough about the history to make real dogmatic statements. Sometimes we do. In this case, I'm not sure that we do. So other theologians who are aware of this episode relate other periods of national discord and infighting. Young believes this is more of a general observation about conditions in a land that had been in opposition to God for millennia. And he says more likely he's presenting a general picture of a period of disorders caused by the judgment of God. His intention is not so much to depict one particular epoch of civil war as it is to show that when God acts in judgment, the nation will use it, lose its unity. In modern terms, we could say that when the people are faced with mass disorder and destruction, it becomes a situation of every man for himself. Oswald also detailed the discord within the nation that occurred throughout Egypt's history. So we're not totally sure if this is one incident or a series of incidents, but it's something that's going on within Egypt itself that brought about strife and discord between the Egyptians themselves and not from an outside power, at least not then. The word incite here is souk. It means to stir up, to provoke, to incite, to stimulate. It means to rouse up, to spur on in the context of the Lord's actions. How God actually accomplishes this is never revealed to us. He doesn't force people and nations to do his will but he uses that which they are predisposed to do to accomplish his purposes. He also sees to it that rulers who are predisposed to do his will are put in the places they need to be at the time they need to be, be there in order to unknowingly accomplish the will of God in whom they do not believe. It's very incredible how God acts. And I don't understand it, and I don't know, if you do, fine, let me know. But he gets things done the way he wants to get things done without forcing people to do what it is he wants to do. It's incredible how, how this works. And we can't forget his foreknowledge either. He knows the end from the beginning, and that's part of the package as well. The verb here in sight represents an intense action with an active voice. God was bringing this situation about. Demoralized, I think, is not the best translation of the word bakak, meaning to empty, to lay waste, to destroy completely, to damage irreparably. The spirit of the Egyptians will be emptied from them. It will be obliterated. In English, in English, demoralized means to cause someone to lose confidence of hope. But that's a far weaker state than this verb here is implying. You know, if any of you are Baylor fans, I think you could say that 
they either got a little demoralized last night in the second half. Well, that's okay, but that's a football game. You know, it's not, it's not life and death, it, it's a football game. Th so I've, I'm thinking that demoralized in this verse is a little bit too weak of a word. Um, we could say that they'll be crushed in spirit with no hope. Uh, Young's Living Translation and ESV have it emptied of spirit, and uh, the Tanakh says they're drained of spirit, which I think are probably a little better translations and indicate the gravity of what they're feeling a little more than, than our English concept of what it means to be demoralized. Don't get me wrong, demoralized can be a very bad condition. If you're in the middle of a war and your unit gets demoralized, that's a very deadly situation. But generally speaking, what's going on here is much stronger than we as native English-speaking people would consider the word demoralized to really be, at least in my opinion. Now, Egypt was noted to be a, a nation of wise men, but God is going to confound their strategy. Uh, their wisdom is going to disappear, and the advice from the wise men of the land will be worthless. Literally, this is saying that God will swallow up their advice and counsel. All the famed wisdom of the Egyptians will be brought to naught by God. They will have no idea what to do, and all the advice they get will be worthless. And the result is they turn to the occult for answers. The word confound here is balad. It means to swallow up, swallow down, engulf, implying that which is swallowed is consumed and no longer visible. Hence, it is as though destroyed. And the word strategy is etzah, and it means advice or counsel based on a plan or a scheme. It refers to something that provides direction or advice as to a decision or a course of action. Now, many people assume that the cruel master and a mighty king must be a foreign king, but the text doesn't say that. And in fact, we read earlier the quote from Kyle and Delish, it was, of course, a king from within and from Young as well. Since the context is a civil war, this king could well be an Egyptian king, and the text doesn't say either way. And as noted above, some theologians do believe it's referring to an Egyptian. The word deliver is saker, and it means to hand over, to surrender someone or something to another, especially to an authority. And this is also a verb expressing intense action with an acting voice. God is handing the people over to this cruel king. Now, it's the natural yearning of the fallen human heart to believe in some sort of God. Romans 1.18 tells us that. But since the knowledge of the true God has been rejected, unbelievers substitute gods of their own making who can do nothing for them in times of distress. Nevertheless, the poor old human heart never stops trying to turn to something greater than himself. The problem is that something they want to turn to is almost always not the God of the Bible. They resort to occult practices to try and determine their future but that will be a futile activity. This will all take, also take place during the tribulation. People will not repent of their sorceries in Revelation 9. Babylon will be the tribulation agent of sorcery in Revelation 18. And the sorcerers operating during that time at the end will be consigned to the lake of fire. <clears throat> the pagan gods of Egypt, like pagan gods everywhere, will be unable to save people and their nation 
and the nation itself is going to be destroyed. The description of this destruction is reminiscent of the Exodus judgments, which produced the same results seen here without necessarily being the result of the supernatural judgments that God imposed on Egypt at that earlier time. And once again, we have this short-term, long-term juxtaposition, type anti-type, in the book of Isaiah that we're seeing here. It's very interesting how these things blend together, and it's not a lot of people that recognize it. Not a lot of people want to recognize it. Um, they will deny predictive prophecy. They will deny that God can have prophets write down what is going to happen at the end of time. So therefore, all these things must just apply to what happened then. And I'm becoming more and more convinced as I study Isaiah. That's not true at all. All right, let's look at the next verses, 5 to 10. The waters from the sea will dry up, and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields of the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament, and all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn, and those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected, and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed. All the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. So this sounds really reminiscent of the Exodus, doesn't it? And I don't know that these kinds of destruction happened in Egypt at this time. I mean, this sounds pretty devastating. And if it is, if it is temporal and, and time passed from us, certainly they recovered from it, to some extent anyway. But what's going to happen at the end will only be recoverable once the kingdom begins. The sea here is a reference to the waters of the River Nile. During flood stage, it had the appearance of a sea rather than a river. I'm assuming that that big dam they built down at Aswan has probably alleviated the flooding problems. I don't know what that's done to their agricultural system. But whenever something happens to the Nile for them, it's impossible for life to continue on in the same way it does when the river is normally operating. This describes a serious drought up and down the Nile River Valley including the irrigation canals and the delta on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. The only place in Egypt that is not desert, as far as I know, is the Nile River Valley. And it's no exaggeration to say that it is the lifeblood of the nation. As to be expected, agriculture will be devastated by this drought, fishing will no longer be possible, and the linen industry will be destroyed. As a result, the economy will be destroyed. And this suggests that Egypt exists only by the grace of God because as the Nile goes, so goes Egypt and God controls the Nile. <clears throat> now, it's noteworthy that the singular for Egypt, which is uh, Matsor, was used here rather than the, the usual Mitzrayim, and that's quite unusual. The singular is used only five times in the Old Testament, while the this is Mitzrayim is a dual... Hebrew word. There's only a few of them that are always used, but for Egypt it pretty much is. Mitzrayim, it refers to two. The, the dual nature of the verb refers to two. Um, 
and that's the word that word is used 681 times so the singular matzor is only used five times so the plural then is is as i said the dual vowel meaning two or duality which must be a reference to upper and lower egypt remember when i did exodus i know you don't remember i hardly remember but the the pharaoh's crown had on it representation of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom so I'm thinking that's why Egypt in Hebrew is known as Mitzrayim, because you have this dual nature of, of the nation, upper and lower Egypt. So the, the use of the singular, though, is most likely intended to refer to lower Egypt, where the various delta rivers and canals were located, which was the most uh, wet and productive agricultural place in the nation. So I think that's why they use singular there, and it refers to Lower Egypt. Now the terms pillars of Egypt and hired laborers indicates that no part of Egyptian society uh, will be spared the impact of God's judgment. So the highest castes who were the direct supporters of the state edifice. So the point is, There, I had those words. If you're into the Hebrew there, you can see the difference between the two. So the point here is that in terms of human beings, from the greatest of them to the least of them, all the Egyptians are going to face God's temporal wrath. That happened during the Exodus. It's happening during this time. And it's going to happen again, not only to Egypt, but to the entire world. All these people that think they're hot stuff and telling everybody else in the world how to run things, they're going to find out they're not so hot after all when we get to the end of history. Others believe the pillars is a reference to all that undergirds your Egyptian society, the foundation of national life in Egypt. This would include the pagan, spiritual aspects of Egyptian life. And just as God overtly defeated Egypt's gods in the Exodus judgments, he would defeat them again, more covertly, but just as decisively when the people figure out their gods are incapable of saving them and preserving their society as they knew it. Now in the next verses, Egypt's vaunted wisdom is called into question. and It is in fact denied by God, or derided by God rather, and rendered null and void. In verse 11, the on are mere fools, the advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can you men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of ancient kings? Now, Zoan, Zoan, is right here. It's way up in the delta, practically on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, right on the north end of the Nile in, in lower Egypt. It's also known as Tani Zoan was a city in the Nile River Delta on the Tanitic branch of the river, north of Goshen and just south of the coast. It was one of the oldest cities in Egypt. It already existed at the time of Abraham. It was an important royal store city in the Northeast Delta region. And today, the Egyptian city of San, or San, S-A-N, stands on that place. During the 21st to late 22nd dynasties, the city was the capital of the pharaohs. During the Nubian, that's the Kushite, 25th dynasty, which encompasses the time of Isaiah's ministry here, 
It was used as an occasional royal residence up here in the north with Memphis located further to the south, but still, of course, in, in Lower Egypt, Memphis is right here, just south of where the rivers branch out and begin to form the delta, was the primary center of government at, this time, at the time we're talking about here in Isaiah. It was an important city in the area, Zoan was, until Alexander the Great built Alexandria, and then that kind of took over the, the northern part of Egypt as a primary city. Kings and presidents always rely on a cadre of advisors to assist them in their leadership duties. I mean, we're always talking about here about the advisors that surround our various presidents. They always have them. Uh, that's the practice then. It's still the practice today. It's done around the world in all governments. The word prince is ser, means a representative of the king, a royal official, official or a commander. It represents the position and the authority of a ruler or a leader. It's not a reference to the sons of Pharaoh as we would ordinarily define the concept of a prince. Uh, Zephaniah 1.8 has a definite distinction made between princes and the sons of the king. Uh, many people are referred to as princes in the Bible. You can have kings, leaders of various levels over various entities, leading priests, tribal chiefs, and so on. All can be called a prince. It's also applied to supernatural beings. The Lord, the Archangel Michael, and Satan, for example, are called princes. Now, the word is set alongside and is used as a synonym for the word advisors, which is yoates, meaning an advisor or a counselor. It refers to a person who speaks and urges certain directions or actions or thought, implying that the advice given is considered wise and valuable. These advisors, counselors, were high-ranking members of the decision-making council of elders surrounding Pharaoh. In the same way, the words fool and stupid are set in parallel with one another and also used as synonyms. The word fool in the Bible is a real, and it means a fool, an idiot, or foolish. It refers to a person who lacks good judgment. And the picture which emerges from, from the biblical material is quite simple. Folly is the opposite of wisdom, and a fool is the opposite of a wise person. Both wisdom and folly are depicted as philosophies or perspectives on life. The religious person chooses wisdom, whereas the non-religious person opts for folly. Wisdom leads to victory, folly to defeat. Wisdom belongs to those who fear God, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. Wisdom is the essence of life. The foolish person is the one who is thoughtless, self-centered, and obviously to God. This is certainly an apt description of unbelieving pagans, their culture and society, and their governmental structure. And if we don't believe it, just look around us today. Egypt seems to be set apart in the Bible as the prototype of the humanist, stupid and foolish structure. So stupid and foolish are not, are talking about in relation to God and how people think and act about God. That's what this is talking about. It's not necessarily talking about IQ. You can have an Einstein who is totally stupid in terms of how he relates to the creator God. 
Okay? And I don't know what his position was on that. Hopefully he was brilliant there too. The word stupid is ba'er, and it means to be stupid or brutish. It refers to being or becoming unintelligent or marked by a lack of intellectual acuity. In this context, it has spiritual connotations. It denotes being deluded, that is, stupid for worshiping idols, being without common religion sense, and therefore being led astray. It refers to those who do not fear the Lord and who do not desire to assimilate his wisdom into their worldview. In biblical sense, that's what makes a person a fool and stupid. It's not in relation to the world, it's in relation to God. You can have some people, there are, there are plenty of, of Downs kids who are believers, and nobody would say that they are intellectually brilliant kids, but they can do a lot, and they can think a lot, and they can become believers very easily. So it's, it's not, and my point is that, it's, as, as I just made the point about Einstein, about these kids, it's not a question about IQ. It's a question about your relationship with God and how you view him and how you think about him and how you react to what it is he needs you to react to. So that's the real definitions of foolish and stupid. Jeremiah used these two words to describe the stupidity of idol worship. In Jeremiah 10, 8, and 14, he said, But they were... But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Every man is stupid and devoid of knowledge. So you see he's connecting those words with idolatry, the worship of false gods. The word foolish is kasal, and it means to be foolish or not wise, lacking in good sense or judgment. It refers to having a complete lack of understanding as to correct action. So again, it's, a, it's relating to us in a spiritual sense here. I mean, it, it carries over into secular life, of course. People can do stupid and foolish things that get them in a lot of trouble and so on. But we're talking about the Bible here, and we're talking about relationships with God, so that's what we're dealing with. So in terms of understanding the Bible, these two words have definite spiritual connotations attached to them. They are important words in terms of understanding the human condition as his has existed since the fall. They must not be restricted to the Egyptians that Isaiah was talking about in this pericope. Fallen people today are still foolish and still stupid when it comes to spiritual matters. They have the knowledge of God, or I should say they have the knowledge of God's... They know who God is, is the best way to put it. But they reject it, which we get from Romans 1. When the Bible refers to someone as a fool... It's a very serious characterization of their state of mind in relation to God. Foolishness is not restricted to unbelievers either. Believers can fall away into unbiblical foolishness and stupidity as well. So clearly, these princes and advisors thought that as sons of Egypt, in other words, as sons of the wise and sons of the ancient kings, they possessed, by virtue of their birthright, an exalted position in the royal court as counselors to Pharaoh, a seemingly automatic endowment of wisdom. And the only way they could say they were still sons of the wise was by means of denying the reality that was surrounding them. They didn't even know it was coming, and they could not prevent, stop, or change the things that were happening to them 
once they started. Whatever wisdom they thought they possessed was utterly worthless to them in the face of judgment poured out on them by the only true living God. If you think back to Exodus, you'll remember that in the beginning, they counterfeited the, the miracles. They could turn water into blood, and they did a couple other things, and finally that was stopped. So they were being foolish and stupid. But some of those wise men started becoming a little wiser because by the time they got to the third or fourth one, whenever they couldn't duplicate anymore, they told Pharaoh, this is God, and you probably should stop messing with him. But he didn't listen. So people have the capacity to learn from these things if they are disposed to learn from them. Kyle and Delich had this to say, princes of Zoan and Memphis are princes of the chief cities of the land and of the supposed primeval pedigree, probably priest princes, since the wisdom of the Egyptian priest was of worldwide renown, and that's according to Herodotus, an ancient historian, and the oldest kings of Egypt sprang from the priestly caste. These magnates of Egypt, with their wisdom, would be turned into fools by the history of Egypt of the immediate future, and this is the meaning of the sarcastic, how can you say they would no longer trust themselves to boast of their hereditary priestly wisdom or their royal descent when giving counsel to Pharaoh. They were the cornerstone of the castes of Egypt, but instead of supporting and defending their people, it is now very evident that they only led them astray. And that's true of everyone who's being foolish in relation to God, whether it's a pastor standing in a church who's preaching false doctrine today or people who just simply reject God or people who have fallen prey to people who preach the false gospel to them. They have all fallen into this foolish and stupid category, and it's very unfortunate because a lot of it is simply due to deception and not that they deliberately want to rebel against God. A lot of people sitting in churches have just been deluded and deceived by false teachers. But it's not an idle boast about the wisdom of the Egyptians, apparently, as I mentioned Herodotus. Here Oswald said the Egyptian wisdom literature, probably growing out of the highly organized court life, is some of the earliest and best preserved known to us. The same is true of their reflections on the nature and meaning of life. And that's one of the very interesting things that's happened with all of the archaeology. You know, it's unfortunate that so many grave robbers got into these things and, and stole so much stuff. But even what was there, we have learned a lot about ancient Egyptian culture, pagan society back then. That's very informative and it's very interesting, even though it's also all in rebellion against God, we went to the King Tut exhibit, and of course the, the exhibit was just full of these little idols, you know, that they, they made that they thought 